Hello, and welcome to the Not a Cast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Becky Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 32nd episode of the Not a Cast entitled Riddles in the Dark, an analysis of the Game of Thrones Aria 3 in which Arya Stark chases cats through the Red Keep and stumbles upon dragon skulls and a pair of conspirators. Man, it's a great episode. This episode is brought to you by all of our Lord's Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., Hayden J., Wolfman Zach, and Joe L. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Thank you, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all of our episodes, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter Samper chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and... Everything. So as we're recording this episode, it is the uh, 17th of September, 2018. George R. R. Martin was just interviewed by Variety magazine in which he revealed that he had originally wanted like 9, 10 or 11 seasons of Game of Thrones, which he has said several times in the past that he thought that A Feast for Crows and Dance of Dragons could have been four seasons apiece. But there was something even more interesting that he talked about in this specific interview in which he said that of the five prequel shows that he's currently working on, Some of the prequels can take place a thousand years in the past, and some of the prequels can take place 100 years in the past. So that's led a lot of folks to believe that one of the prequel shows is the Blackfire Rebellions, specifically, most likely, in my opinion, probably the first Blackfire Rebellion. And I think this is actually really cool. I think Emmett and I were just talking about this in pre-production, and I, I just saw his tweet about it as well. I am a huge fan of the idea of a Blackfire Rebellion show, and I would love to see the first Blackfire Rebellion in like, I could see like a three season, I think, um, arc, so to speak, for a Blackfire Rebellion show where you have the setup of Aegon the Fourth in the first season with him dying at the end of the first season, the rebellion itself and the fall and the near fall of the Red Dragon in the second season. And of course, the third season concluding with, of course, the Battle of the Red Grass Field being probably season three, episode nine episode, you know, the famous one from Game of Thrones where they always have the big thing coming out. And of course, the 10th episode being Bittersteel and the Golden Company, or what would become the Golden Company fleeing across the Narrow Sea and Darren the second taking full reign of a broken and somewhat ruined realm. So, Emmett, what do you think? Do you think that the Black- Blackfire Rebellion show is a possibility, one? And two, would it be something you would like to see? And then finally, if you were the, the showrunner for the first Blackfire Rebellion show, how would you run the show? Well, I think it is a possibility because, as you say, Martin said that one of the series could be a uh, 100 years before the main events of The Song of Ice and Fire slash Game of Thrones take place. That does line up, not perfectly, but, you know, approximately with the Blackfire Rebellion era. Yes. Certainly there were other major events in Westeros around that time, but if you're going to make a show about war and intrigue and politics and, you know, big dramatic characters, that is that is the event in that era you would be making oh, yeah. a show about. I would absolutely love to see that. The Blackfire Rebellion, specifically the first Blackfire Rebellion, and as you noted, everything leading up to it, is probably my favorite part of the backstory. Yes. I really, really love it. I specifically love it much more than uh, The Dance of the Dragons, uh, which, <laughs> yes. which has its moments. There are like incredible scenes and specific images in the dance like when uh prince damon jumps down onto aemon one eye with his sword over the, over the god's eye and mm-hmm. incredible moments but it's just a story about assholes being assholes and right. the blackfire rebellion there's you, can, you really get the motivations of everyone involved really well you understand uh what's driving a lot of the rebels even though of course a lot of them are driven by racism and sexism but also there's also a lot of real valid anger about how the Dornish war was handled and the peace yes. after it and how Daron the 2nd mismanaged that 
You have characters with, you know, conflicted loyalties like Blood Raven and Bittersteel and the kind of intense vendetta between them. Yes. You've got a Redgrass Field and just the way that's described in The Sworn Sword, one of the Duncan Egg novellas, as this battle that kind of represents both the horror and the glory of war in, in equal mm-hmm. measure. And just what you could do with that, I think, as a talented showrunner is amazing. And even, yeah, it's like in the dance, you have like Viserys the first who just kind of didn't really seem to realize what he mistakes he was making. And I think that's less interesting than this, than Egan the fourth as this Henry the eighth, but worse figure who <laughs> deliberately screwed everybody over. Uh, and you have uh, Baylor Breakspear, who's, you know, the most kind of maybe the most single admirable character in the entirety of this universe. I mean, you could maybe argue Maester Aemon, but I, I put Baylor Breakspear up there. Yes. And of course, and of course, that, that, that feeds into the Duncan Egg story. So if you want to do some kind of adaptation of those, the Black Far Rebellion would be kind of a great lead into those. Yeah. So if, if I were the showrunner, <laughs> one thing I would definitely do is uh, among, among my beloved, most beloved fan casts when it comes to A Song of Ice and Fire is the actor Michael Shannon as Stannis. I, lo- <laughs> I love Stephen Delane and his work, but my, uh, Michael Shannon, ever since I first started uh, watching him in movies, he's always struck me as the ultimate Stannis. Just his brittleness and the, those blazing blue eyes. Can I guess who hair. you're going to select him for? Uh, Can I guess who you're going to fan cast him for? You mm-hmm. ready? Yep. Makar. Precisely. If if you've okay, read uh, yes yes if you've read if you've read these histories in question if you've read the Duncan Egg stories and know your stuff about the Blackfire rebellions, uh, Makar Targaryen is very very clearly a Stannis analog. Yes. In terms of his role in the family, overall temperament, and I just I would I would love. I love love to see a, a Michael Shannon sink his teeth into that. So that's just dream fan casting aside. But yeah, as far as what if I was showrunner, I like the structure of the story you set up there. Devote a season to Egan the Fourth, Aemon the Dragon Knight, uh, Neris, uh, young Daron the Second, getting us the information about the young dragon and kind of the backstory of the Dornish Wars. Maybe have Egan Fourth die at the end of that first season, and then you have. A season, season two could focus heavily on Blood Raven and Bittersteel and them whispering in people's ears. And hmm. uh, you introduce Fireball, get him involved. You get more into Makar and, and uh, Breakspear and that whole generation. You have War Breakout at the end. And then, yeah, season three, you have the actual, the actual conflicts. And I, I think the conflicts of the Blackfire Rebellion are interesting because you see this dynamic of lesser houses in each region kind of taking advantage of the war to try to topple the Paramount houses because the, the majority of the Paramount houses sided with uh, Daron II. And, yeah. Uh, Damon Blackfire drew his strength specifically from the Reach and the Riverlands more than anywhere else, but also from lesser houses in each other region. Like the... Sure. Uh, you have like the Ironwoods, the, Ironwoods the, yeah. the Sunderlands, I believe, um, mm-hmm. fought for Damon. The, the one disadvantage is that uh, everyone loves the North, and the North, uh, not not so yeah. much for for taking part in the Blackfire Rebellions. They had the kind of their own own drama going on, as w- as will probably be developed more later on. So that that unfortunately, you, you might have to uh, invent some role for them. That's that isn't isn't part of the existing mythos, but kind of because obviously the mass audience knows the Starks, they know Winterfell. You might have to come up with a way if you wanted to do a show about the Blackfire Rebellions to rope the North into it. But like I said, there's there's such potential for strong dramatic characters and a, and, a, and a good series arc, and it could yeah you could I think you could come up with a a, sh- a show like HBO's Rome out of that out of the Black yeah. Fire Rebellion. I think you could do a really great job with it. So we'll see. Obviously, you know there's there's so much up in the air, constantly evolving with these these spinoff series. In the news recently, Brian Cogman, one of the writers for Game of Thrones, appears to have signed uh, an exclusive contract that may or may not—I'm I'm not sure of the details here. 
yeah. way, uh, have an impact on whether he can be involved with those series. So a lot of this is up in the air and ever evolving, but I would absolutely adore to see a Black Fire Rebellion show. Yeah, I, to provide a little more clarity on on the Brian Cogman situation, the, the issue with him is that he is still signed on for Game of Thrones Season 8, and he did sign an exclusive deal with Amazon to produce content for them, and which is great because Amazon has the Lord of the Rings show coming out here in the next few years, the Wheel of Time show. Apparently, Amazon is helming that one as well. So there are great franchises and properties available for Brian Cogman to do great work in. And, you know, my cards on the table, I think Brian Cogman is not a 100% flawless writer and screenwriter for Game of Thrones, but he's among my favorites. And I think the reason why I put him on a, on a plane above some of the others is because he has a real love for the series and he has been known as the keeper of the lore for Game of Thrones since before season one. And he's written some of my favorite scenes and episodes. Uh, Kiss by Fire is probably among, probably my top five episodes of all time in Game of Thrones, but he was the writer for that one. And also my, my favorite episode from season two, which is uh, What Is Dead May Never Die? Like he was the writer for these two. And he's always, and I, it, it probably near and dear to, to Emmett's heart, he has always said that his one of his favorite characters is Aaron Greyjoy and he loves the Ironborn plotline, which is odd, right? I mean, when you... Not odd, but I mean, it's it's a little bit unique in terms of takes on this series is that people don't generally gravitate towards the Ironborn. They like the Jamies and the Aryas and the Jon Snows and the Daenerys Targaryens. Few people besides, you know, the real fans, because all only real fans. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, that's, that's one true Scotsman fallacy there, but that's fine. Um, but, you know, only like folks who are like really deep in the lore, really love the Ironborn and Dorne stuff, especially not only, but a lot of the folks you find. No, I get what you're are, saying. Yeah. No, I, I, I really like Brian Cogman for that. I know he pushed for the inclusion of Dorne and looking back, that might have been better off for the show if that didn't happen. But I, I give him props for trying in that regard. Yeah. And yes, I love that comment of his that Aaron Damper is one of his favorites because he's one of mine, too. And I think yes. he's a really underrated character with a really distinct arc and strong themes that kind of run through what we've seen of him so far. Probably a character that wouldn't have worked that well on the show because to make Aaron work, you really have to have Book Euron specifically there to have him make sense. And Book Euron was probably never on never on the cards for the show. No. But yeah, that, I mean, that that is the sort of thing that makes you like Brian Cogman. So I, I certainly yeah. I look forward to his involvement in whatever project he ends up in. Yeah. But the potential fallout or consequence for Brian Cogman signing on with Amazon is that there is a potential that the show that he was producing or screenwriting for for the pilot for Game of Thrones alongside of George R. R. Martin is potentially shelved or potentially off the table altogether. And that is a little bit tragic. I, I had thought for a long time now that George and Brian were working on a Dance of the Dragons show. And it's, you know, it's a little bit sad if, if George's vehicle wasn't picked up necessarily and Brian's, Brian's vehicle for that matter as well. But, you know, I, I wish him all the best in his new show and his new future with Amazon. And, you know, we'll have to see what comes out. Of course, we have The Long Night coming out in 20. Actually, they're going to start filming in early 2019 is what I've been reading with the potential release either later in the year or in early 2020. So it's going to be a Game of Thrones is not going away anytime soon, guys and gals. It's This show is going to be here and this franchise is going to be here for the duration. And, you know, we want to wish The Long Night show or the or the age of heroes show a lot of success because a lot of what is seems to be hinging on that show is whether the future successor shows will then be developed as a result of the success or failure of the long night or age of heroes show so we want to even if it's not like terrific we want to wish it success so we can see some other franchises and, and different ips coming into development here in the next few years 
Agreed, sir. 100%. Well said. Yeah. We do apologize that we're not going to be having a question necessarily from you all this week. We'll be picking that up next week. And of course, in addition to picking it up next week, we will have our next Patreon-only episode, which is our seventh Patreon episode, which is Stump the Chumps, where we've gotten... 30, 40, maybe even 50 questions to this point that we're going to be forced to answer. We might even have to split up into a couple of different episodes, depending on on how long it gets uh, as, as we're going right now. But but yeah, so check that out at patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOIF. That Patreon only episode is coming to you all on September 27th. So take a look at that. That'll be available for all five dollars above patrons. But we will be picking up questions next week for our regular episodes as well. Thank you, chumps, for your questions. <laughs> Indeed. So we'll have to see what comes of the successor shows to Game of Thrones. We'll look forward to answering your questions next week in the patron-only episode and picking up on our regular questions. But now we're going to be talking about one of my top five chapters in all of the Game of Thrones, which is the Game of Thrones, Arya 3. And here's its synopsis. Arya Stark faces down a foe cornered against a wall in the bowels of the Red Keep. Quiet as a shadow, light as a feather. She repeats these as prayers to herself as she approaches her prey. Her prey is not an easy one, though. It's a one-eared black tomcat, mean as sin and ready to rumble. But this isn't the first cat Arya's caught. Oh no, her hands are full of scratches, her knees are scabbed over. She's kind of had a lot of difficulties at first. Even the fat kitchen cat had escaped her grasp. When she had told Syria Furl of her trial and tribulations, Syria told her to get faster. Her enemies would give her more than scratches. And so Arya had gotten faster. Arya observed the cats up close and personal throughout the Red Keep. Lazy old cats, cold-eyed mouse killers, kittens with needle claws, lady cats. And of course, there was this one-eared black tomcat that stood apart from the rest for being a mean black bastard who had once stolen a roast quail from Tywin Lannister's fingers. God, I would have loved to have seen that in, in a POV <laughs> chapter. And now Arya was chasing this cat. Through the castle, twice around the Tower of the Hand, across the inner bailey, through the stables, down serpentine steps, past the kitchen and pig yard and the gold cloak barracks, along the base of the river wall, and up more steps, back and forth over Traitor's Walk, and then down again, down and down and down, and through a gate and around a well, and in and out of strange buildings until Arya didn't know where she was. And now she had this cat backed up against the wall, quiet as a shadow, light as a feather, Three steps from the cat, the cat darts and tries to escape, but Arya cuts him off and grabs him, wrapping her to his chest. She kisses the cat, and then a voice calls out behind her. What's he doing to that cat? Arya rolls around, dropping the cat and finds Princess Marcella and Prince Tommen, along with an obese Septa and two Lannister guards next to them. Marcella demands to know what the boy was doing to that cat, and Arya realizes that they don't recognize her. Perhaps they wouldn't recognize her if she got past them either. The Septim moves forward, demanding to know how the quote-unquote boy got down here. When Arya makes no sound, the Septim orders one of the Lannister guards to bring Arya to him. Well, Arya's not about to shame herself, her father, or her family's name. As the guardsman reaches for her, she leaps away and then dives through the Septim's legs, runs over Tommen, and then dives past the other Lannister guard before bounding down the hallway. When footsteps approach behind her, she finds the first available cover and then a window overhead. She leaps for it, catches the windowsill, and pulls the w and pulls herself through the window, slippery as an eel. Now she's alone in the dark and she's tired, and boy, is it dark. No light, no windows, nothing. It's fucking pitch black down here. When she first got into King's Landing, she had nightmares that she would get, that she would get lost in the Red Keep, but now she really is lost. In her dreams, she had wandered the Red Keep, finding faded tapestries, circular stairs, and walls that almost seemed to drip blood. And though she would sometimes hear her father Ned's voice, it would always grow faint until it was completely gone. We'll talk about that. 
In the dark now, Arya hugs her knees against her chest and allows her eyes to adjust to the lack of light. In time, it did, but um, what she sees is a little scary. No, scratch that. It's fucking terrifying. Terrible beasts, monsters with long teeth. Arya squeezes her eyes shut and tries to make the monsters go away. But more than make the monsters go away, she closes her eyes to make her fear go away. That's pretty important. When she opens her eyes again, the fear is gone, but the monsters remain. She reaches out to touch the monsters. Hard. It's bone. It's the skulls of the Targaryen dragons now hidden away deep in the Red Keep dungeon. It's dead, Arya says aloud. It's just a skull. It can't hurt me. But is it dead? Arya thinks the eyeless skulls of the dragons are watching her, and they don't like her very much. Arya whirls and catches her clothes in the tooth of one of the dragons. Breaking free, Arya runs down the hallway, knowing that it will eventually lead somewhere. She passes through a door which leads to a room even blacker than the one with the dragon skulls. Arya feels blind, but she tells herself that fear cuts deeper than swords. Love that line. She walks through the darkness, but then noises come. The scrape of boots, voices, and then she sees a light and something coming up the steps. A torch and two men. And they're talking. Oh yeah, baby, they're talking. The men talk about someone finding a bastard and what he'll do when he finds out the truth. Hmm. Who are they talking about, Emmett? I don't know. It's kind of weird, right? I think it's Sir Kyle Condon, personally. Oh, yeah. Sir Kyle Condon and Sir... Uh, yeah, Sir Kyle Hunt probably is, well, is in there, too. I, I maybe imagine. maybe Justin Massey. All the important characters, you know. True. Yeah, that would, that, would be, that would be true. But wait, they had tried to kill his son, and the wolf and the lion will be each other's throats, but the other warns that it's too soon for war. Too soon for all that. Delay. Delay the war. Yeah, okay, the other says. It's like you think I'm a wizard or some shit. Yeah, the other guy does. The men start to move off, but Arya follows them. What would you have me do, the one holding the torch says. If one hen can die, why not a second? The huge dude with the forked yellow beard replies, Hmm, guy with the forked yellow beard who's also massive. Have we met this guy before? Maybe getting some vibes on him from somewhere in the books is Strong Bellwas? Is that who I'm, I'm reading about right here? Oh, there, Jeff. Yep. Ah, fuck yeah. Got it. Nailed it. Yeah, but it could be Strong Bellwas, but this isn't the same hand, though, but they still need time. The princess is pregnant, and the call won't move until she gives birth to the son. Savages, right? High five? Yeah? No? Okay. <laughs> but it's not just a game for the Starks and Lashes anymore. Oh, shit. I shouldn't have said that out loud. My bad. Stannis and Lysa are gone as well. The Tyrells are also involved, trying to get Marjorie into Robert's bed, with Renly and Loras plotting to get Marjorie wet to Robert. And Littlefinger? The gods alone know the game that Littlefinger is playing. But none of them disturb Vara's... Ah, oh, shit. I said that out loud again, didn't I? <laughs> Spoilers so much. clumsy. I know, right? But none of them disturb Vara's as much as Ned Stark. He's got the bastard. He's got the book. And he's going to have the truth soon enough. But worse still, Ned's wife, Catelyn, has abducted Tyrion thanks to Littlefinger's work. And if the Lannisters move north, the Tullys will go to war, and it'll be goddamn Archduke Ferdinand all over again. We need to hustle, Illyrio. Not delay. But Varys warns that he can't keep all his balls up in the air forever. He'll do what he can, but he needs more gold and 50 more birds without tongues who can read and write. But by then, their voices are fading. And even though Arya can still see their torch and tries to keep following, it's no good. They're gone. Arya keeps walking through, pursuing for a time until the torch light is finally gone. In the end, she ends up at the mouth of the sewer, smelling like shit and piss. She jumps into the river below, bathes, and then makes her way back to, the king, back to King's Landing in the dark of night. Arya then moves up to the Red Keep, not the main gate, of course. She moves up to a side door and confronts two gold cloaks who tell her to get lost, Scrub. 
When she persists, one of the guardsmen asks if she wants a clout in the ear. When she insists yet again that she lives in the Red Keep, one of them tries to punch her. She dodges away from the punch and then proceeds to tell him that she's Arya Stark of Winterfell. Go get Jory Cassell or Van Poole. They'll verify her. Unless you'd like a clout in the ear. When Arya is then finally let through, she's escorted to the Red Keep and then meets up with her father. She begins to try to tell him everything she heard about a wizard and a princess with a child and, and, and... Did the wizard have a pointy hat? Ned asks, unsmiling. He did not. He was real, though. It's not like old Nan's tales. And then there were monsters. Monsters and wizards. It would seem you've had quite an adventure, Arya. Ned then tells Arya that the dudes who were down the dungeons were probably mummers, only here for the tourney. No, Ned. Bad Ned. Bad, bad, bad. Dad, no. No, Dad, yeah. We have a little Girls Gone Canon here there <laughs> reference right there. Anyways, Ned thinks it's about time for Arya's dancing lessons to stop with Cyril Farrell, but before he can give word that he wants to talk with the dancing master, Desmond lets Ned know there's a member of the Night's Watch at the door, begging audience. Ned lets him in and welcomes him in as the door is always open to the Night's Watch. He asks the dude's name. It's Yoram. And boy, does he have news. Arya bursts in, asking after Rob and Rickon and whether John has arranged yet. Oh, and can you take a letter back to John if you wrote one? Man, Arya is so freaking adorable in this chapter, man. It just... It just kind of oozes out of her. It's great. When Ned apologizes for Arya's lack of courtesies and then asks whether Benjen sent Yorin, well, Ned's about to get his world fucking rocked. You see, no one sent Yorin to Ned. He's there because of Benjen. Yes, he considers Benjen as much a brother as Ned is to Benjen, but he rode hard, nearly killing his horse to get to King's Landing, leaving all the others behind. And Tywin Lannister will have probably gotten word by now. Word of what? Well, Yorin's not about to blab in front of everyone. It's not about John, are you asked? Nah, John's doing fine. He's got no word on Benjamin. But that's not why Yorin's come. But before she can find out more info, Arya's escorted away by Desmond. As they head back to her chambers, Arya asks how many men her father has in King's Landing. Fifty, Desmond replies. And they wouldn't let anyone kill him, right? Right? Of course not. And even if the Lannisters have more dudes here, every Northman is worth ten of those Lannister dogs. Ah, but what about wizards? What if one of those was sent to kill Ned? Desmond draws a sword. Wizards die the same as other men once you cut their heads off. And that is Game of Thrones Aria 3, a freaking fantastic chapter that really gives our first inklings of the Vara's Illyrio conspiracy, as well as our first glimpses of the character Arya will be for the remainder of A Song of Ice and Fire. What do you think, Emmett? Yeah, it's interesting. Arya, of course, has the fewest chapters of any POV in this first book yeah. in A Game of Thrones. She has only five chapters. Sansa has six, Bran has seven, it kind of goes up from there. Uh, and as such, she doesn't really have a coherent beginning, middle, end character arc in this book, unlike some of her later books, unlike Clash or even more so Storm. Yeah. Ned and Sansa arguably have more so of an arc in this book. You can say, you know, Ned has his rise to power and then his downfall. Sansa starts off with her head in the clouds, and then by the end of the book, a lot of her illusions have been shattered. Arya doesn't really have that. You can. Arya doesn't really have an A to B a journey over the course of this book. Instead, her job is to kind of provide a contrast with them. Ned and Sansa have been yeah. showing us in the last few chapters, tourneys, council sessions. They'll, they'll show us judgments rendered in the shadow of the Iron Throne later on in the book. Uh, Arya is chasing cats. She's underfoot. <laughs> She's where she belongs. She's listening in on conspiracies and bursting into her father's solar with a wild tale that he won't believe but should. So she provides this useful kind of perspective from the ground. She's, you know, she's, she's six inches high. You kind of picture her that way. Just this, this, this tiny little person running around, getting into scrapes. That fits with her, her friendship with Micah in previous in chapters, her memory of Ned dining with his servants. It, it fits perfectly that that 
Flashback is put in an Arya chapter rather than a Ned or Sansa chapter. Of course, she gets mistaken for a peasant boy by Tommen and Marcella and their their entourage. In this chapter, this this establishes Arya as our Stark POV among the people, which will of course carry over to her time in the Riverlands and arguably in Braavos as well. And that's what I really like about this chapter is it's it's refreshing change from the kind of intrigue among the high lords that we've seen in, in previous chapters in this book. Of course, that comes up when we get to Varys and Illyrio. Yes. But that's not Arya's perspective. That's not what her mindset is. That's not what she's thinking about. So I like that change. I like that we're, we're getting to someone just, just doing her training. It's, it's, it's nice. It's nice to have that moment where Arya is still an innocent in some sense of course as we know she is not totally innocent she has started she has started to engage emotionally with what's going on around her and with the death of lady and having to drive nymeria away back in sansa's first chapter and then in, in ned's third chapter from a game of thrones it's it's definitely a point in her story where she's starting to develop her, her worldview a bit. And here we also see that worldview developing out even more as Arya starts to develop these kind of catchphrases. I think we can call them catchphrases, but they almost, they almost work as prayers, you know, slippery as a eel, quick as a snake, fear cuts deeper than swords. These are things that she's going to be repeating throughout her arc in all five of the published books and even on into the winds of winter. So it's really cool that we get this moment where Arya is just in the midst of her training montage and her training arc. And I think it's also cool too, because as we saw in Arya 2, Arya is significantly broken up about the death of Lady and about the death of Micah. And here she has something to do. I think one thing that's a testament to Ned Stark is that instead of letting his daughters dwell on the emotionally crushing moments that they had experienced on the road to King's Landing, he has given them something to do something to train at, something to get better at. And in Arya's case, she's dancing, so to speak, with Cyril Farrell and learning how to be a water dancer in King's Landing. And here we get a a a moment in time where she is still where she's still training. She's still trying to it's almost like her her montage, right? I mean you can imagine some sort of like music playing and she's uh she's catching cats. That's the thing that they that they have her doing is catching cats. So where Sansa's training as a lady was found in the in the hands tourney, here we have Arya's training found as someone who is attempting to be a water dancer and something that is going to be dominating her for the rest of her arc. And, and I do love the point you make about her interactions with the small folk and how she very easily blends in with them, you know, bathing in the river afterwards, seeming like a peasant when she comes back to the gates of Kings or back to the Red Keep. You know, it's, it's all really good groundwork for what she's going to be encountering in Clash and Storm. Yeah, since I just moved to Philadelphia, I feel like I should have the Rocky music playing over this whole training <laughs> montage of her. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all groundwork for Arya being our eyes on the devastation that the small folk face in the Riverlands when we get to Clash of Kings. Arya is, of course, our POV on the Brotherhood Without Banners, which is led by a knight, but is largely a small folk-driven political movement fighting against all noble houses that are devastating the Riverlands. And even in Bravos, she's, you know, she's hanging out. She, she stays with one uh, family of merchants. For a while, as cat of the canals, she's always like yep. talking to mummers and beggars and and bar folk and you know Arya 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 rubs elbows. That's that's her that's one yeah. of her defining traits and one of the things that uh, I really love about her and is kind of constant throughout her story, even as she moves to these different environments and different moods. But yeah, here she is in in training mode. It's interesting after the hands tourney which was, of course, showcasing some, some young knights, but largely kind of experienced martial artists, warriors in their prime, people like Jamie and the Clegane brothers. And after we saw the battle in the Mountains of the Moon in our most recent chapter in Tyrion IV, which is, of course, actual fighting by adult warriors, 
Here we see yep. warrior training at its kind of earliest and simplest stages. It's about your movements. It's about how you handle yes. yourself, how you look at your environment. It's not about combat yet. The worst thing a cat can do is scratch or bite you. There's nothing lethal going on here. It's just learning how to carry yourself and learning how to how to use all your five senses. And it, yeah. it kind of pairs that down to the very simplistic. Like you say, the, she's got her mantras. Quiet as a shadow, light as a feather, quick as a snake, calm as still water, smooth as summer silk, swift as a deer, slippery as an eel. Strong as a bear, fierce as a wolverine. <laughs> I think about the um, the training mantras song from the movie Mulan. It's like you have to be, you know, mysterious as the dark yeah. side of the moon and strong as a coursing river and a typhoon. And, you know, that's basically uh, this version yeah. of that. And I love your comparison to a prayer because this is, again, groundwork for her later arc in terms of the, the mantras of the faceless men, the religious cults who will join in Bravos. They have, they have their mantras too. Who are you? I am no one. And you have to kind of... Right. The, the call and response games, the the lying game she plays with the waif. I think you can draw a straight line from Sirio, who of course is from Bravos. You can draw a straight line from Sirio's training to that later on training. I, I would even argue you could make a connection between her mantras and her list of people she wants to kill when you get to, yeah, when you get to Clash right. and Storm. Obviously, Absolutely. different in terms of tone. Like these are positive mantras. Yeah. Those are negative ones. But same kind of sense of like you have this sentence in your brain you're returning to over and over that kind of defines you throughout the day. Sure. You think about it when you wake up and you think about it when you go to sleep. Yeah, I'm not, not of course, I'm not condemning Sirio and saying that his mantras are just like the list. But I think there's uh, I think of like the war movies like Full Metal Jacket that kind of focus really in on those aphorisms and those those sentences you hammer into young recruits heads and how that affects them. And Arya is going through her own version of that process here because something I love about the chapter, we don't even see Sirio give her the list and then and then see her putting it into practice. We we see her using those phrases in her head before we realize they're from Sirio. We just yeah. see them in the chapter. She just thinks them. They just they just pop up in italics, a couple every paragraph throughout this chapter. Quiet as a shadow, and then she's description of her moving. Light as a feather, and description of her moving. It's a great way of getting us inside Arya's head. And yeah, like you say, this is very important for her after what she's been through. I like that she feels excited about something again. She's interested in something. She's doing something. And it's a very innocent, yeah. sweet thing. Chasing cats. What could, what could be more like wonderfully childlike than that? I think you're right. And I think it's cool you had mentioned about how she's she has these phrases that pop up in italics. And I think there's a great little almost sub story that's kind of below the surface, which is showing us how far her training has progressed because George, as we're going to find out in, in Feast and Dance, one of the criticisms he gets for Feast and Dance is that we have too many travelogue and too many of these training montage chapter type things where you have Bran learning at the feet of Blood Raven and Arya learning at the Faceless Men. But and, and I, I think that's that, that criticism is, is overblown significantly. But here we kind of cut right to the action and we have Arya reflecting on her training as we get into this chapter itself, where she is trained and now she's acting and she has this task to pick up cats and she has these little like phrases. And, you know, as you were talking about full metal jacket as the aphorisms and I, you know, from my own experiences and in, in being in the military, that, that's definitely very true where you just have these things constantly repeated in my head that <laughs> the, the, the one that I always remember is uh real black boots shine faster by hand, which is <laughs> a, uh, I don't know what the, there's a, there's a specific word for it, but it means like what you would do when you evaluate a casualty, you look for response, breathing, bleeding, shock, you know, fracture, okay. you know, all, you go okay. through all of That's the different things. Yeah. So it's, yeah. So it's kind of like this different thing that this is the same sort of idea 
that Arya is encountering here where she has to remember her training and she remembers her training in these kind of quick phrases, which is absolutely what Syria was should be doing and is doing it really well. And, you know, I, I think it's 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 cool too. You would you have referenced this, and we will talk about this a uh, little bit more in depth as we get into the the foreshadowing piece, but when Arya is in Bravos, how she becomes cat of the canals, and what is she doing here? But catching cats, right? It's a consistent theme in her story. And of course, her mother's, of course, Catelyn or Cat too. So you have that connection that is constantly being that is constantly running through Arya's arc. And I think that's it's great. It's fantastic. And I and I do think I'm, from here on out, I will be listening to this chapter with yeah, running through my head as I'm going through. Absolutely. And um, as well, I mean, like. You know, I have that for that that John chapter from, uh, and I got this idea from Steve Atwell from a few years ago, where he was doing um, the chapter where they're running from the wildlings from Clash of having the Last of Mohicans music play the, the entire chapter, which I've done because since since uh, since Mr. Atwell suggested it, and it makes that chapter so much better. But yeah, it's fantastic. But it's you know, it's all about building blocks for what's going to come for Arya. You know, as as Ciro says in this chapter, you get scratches from cats. It's going to be a lot worse when you encounter real foes out in the real world. And that's something that Arya is going to be learning as she progresses in her arc in A Song of Ice and Fire. Absolutely. What Syria was teaching her is discipline. And it's important to learn discipline because your enemies won't be forgiving of your mistakes. As he says, right. yeah, she runs to him with her hands bleeding from the scratches. You know, the implication is she's looking for sympathy or she's looking. I mean, I doubt this about Arya, but maybe she's looking for an excuse to stop. And he says, no, so slow, be quicker, girl. Your enemies will give you more than scratches. You know, you need to you need to be hurt now so you won't die later. It's going to get dangerous out there. It reminds me of how when we get to a Feast for Crows and Brienne becomes a POV and she's thinking about her master at arms, I think Sir Goodwin, I don't know if I recall his name off the top of my head. Yes, yes, Sir Goodwin. Uh, and how she, uh, he, he, she, he tells her that it doesn't matter how skilled you are if you flinch, if you don't have that discipline. You can have all of this skill and practice in the world, but if you flinch from killing or catching a cat in this case in the right moment you know all that discipline goes out the window and, and you are as screwed as anyone else and that's that's something Arya has yep. to learn now in a relatively safe environment so it can serve her later on when it's when it's more dangerous it's you know her equivalent of fighting with blunted arms in the training yard but of course as we saw in Arya's very first pov chapter she's not allowed to do that so she has to do this equivalent of of taking on cats mm -hmm. as, uh, as uh, our, our friend of the show chloe aka eliza arbor one of the co-hosts <laughs> of girls gone canon who was on our show for for sansa 2 has pointed out if you put uh cat uh, Arya's nom de plume and bravos together with uh, sansa's pseudonym of elaine in the veil at the same time if you put those together you get cat elaine or just catalyn huh. their mom's name never heard that that's awesome uh so that's yeah that's a nice nice little connection to their mom there and um who knows how much of that martin had planned early on at this stage but yeah Arya's Arya's connection to cats is, is a pretty consistent thing and it fits because what do cats do they skulk around underfoot they like you know they hide out in mm -hmm. corners they're always watching they're always listening Sometimes they're just relaxed and snoozing, but they're, they're not, they don't have the kind of the, the loyalty and service you don't necessarily associate them with as you do with dogs. You know, cats you more, you more think of as, as being watchful and lone and kind of uh, silent in the way that Arya becomes, uh, especially when you get to Bravos and the Faceless Men. Yeah, it's very, very true. And what Arya is engaging in is a bit of what they call in the military muscle memory, where she is constantly learning these different things and just applying it to her so she doesn't even have to think about it, consciously think about it. It just becomes second nature to her. And I think one of the cool things, too, about this chapter is that we see a progression in her ability to catch cats in that they talk about how those fat kitchen cats, she couldn't even catch them at the start of her training with Zero Pharrell. But now she's cornered the biggest 
baddest motherfucker of a cat there is in the Red Keep. And that cat, of course, being, well, we'll talk about that in a little bit here. Yes, it takes her on a merry chase. And this gives Martin an excuse to delve into the Red Keep as a location in and of itself, which he hasn't really done much up until this chapter. He's kind of described individual rooms as Ned has happened to be in them, like he's in the council chambers, he's in uh, Pycelle's uh, solar. But Arya's moving all over the place, so when her her chasing the cats, uh, even the descriptions of the cats gives you a sense of all the variety of the people in the castle, and we'll get into that more specifically mm-hmm. a little later on. But yeah, she's describing going down all these hallways, in and out of rooms, when she's running away from Tom and Marcella, she's jumping through doors and windows and scurrying into little little alleys, little rooms... So you get the sense of the Red Keep as this, as this huge place, and there's, uh, yeah, there's the moment where, as she says that uh, Ned told her that the Red Keep was was smaller than Winterfell, but uh, it, it didn't really feel that way in her dreams. Quote: In her dreams, it had been immense, an endless stone maze with walls that seemed to shift and change behind her, <laughs> uh, giving the sense of almost like a magic place, like this is Hogwarts or something, like that. that it's a building you can't quite trust, unlike Winterfell. Like remember those early chapters in Winterfell, and as we said at the time. You get such a song, strong sense of place and like how like sturdy yeah. and home-like it felt and how it like, as, as Bran will say in Clash of Kings, that its roots go deep. Uh, the, red, mm-hmm. the Red Keep does not feel on your side. The Red Keep feels like it's going to no. eat you. Again, like Catelyn literally described it as a monster when we first saw it, when she was introduced to King's Landing. And Arya emphasizes this here uh, when she's talking about her dreams. I had completely forgotten about this line. Yeah, that uh, in some of the rooms, the red stone walls would seem to drip blood. <laughs> like that's just ugh, that's just a skin crawling image of this this building that just seems very nightmarish. And so right. on the one hand, uh, Arya is getting into the Red Keep and telling us the details feels very much like Bran telling us the details about Winterfell. You know, he would go into like he, when he was talking in his second chapter in this book about like, you know, you, you come out this door and you go over here and I'm going to visit the Glass Gardens and go over here. But that was very loving and very familiar. And again, a strong sense of home. This is like mm-hmm. Arya's lost in a, in a horrible place that isn't isn't on her side. It almost feels like the House of the Undying. This particular description of it, like the everything shifting and changing, and the walls dripping blood, and like voices from around the corner. It's it's very very sinister, and and you, you get a sense that she doesn't belong here. And, may, and you know maybe no one would really feel at home here besides a Targaryen. When you get right down to it, in the same way that only the Starks feel at home at Winterfell. Yeah, it's. It- a unfamiliar place. It's not home. And I do love that that shifting wall sort of thing is something that we see at the end of this chapter with Varys and Illyrio. That's and a it's great point. That yeah. we're going to be seeing throughout where Varys is always able to like emerge from a wall or from a bed or these different things as, as because he is the, the guy who knows the Red Keep better than anyone living at this point. And I think it's interesting. It just come to me when you were talking about because we were talking about this in pre-production. Like, what the fuck does that mean about the, the walls dripping with blood? Is that maybe Martin talking about the death of all the stonemasons that Magor did at the end of building the Red Keep where he had all of these guys who had built the Red Keep then murdered? And I, I, I might be misremembering this, but I, I believe it's said somewhere in the story about the creation of the Red Keep that it was it was mortared with the blood of the stonemasons that had been killed by Magor. Yeah, cool. that's a great point. Maybe that's the connection that Martin is drawing here. But I think it's also potentially foreshadowing of larger things to come, things that we haven't even seen in the main books yet, as we're going to see when Daenerys and Aegon then come onto the Red Keep at some point, and either in Winds or, or, or Dream of Spring. So, yeah, it's it's great. It's a great description. It really does feel like a like a haunted house, a house of horrors, or like you said, the house of the undying. It's it's not a nice place. It's not a place I wouldn't want to be in or want to be lost in for sure. 
And of course, it's a place that's hiding monsters. And that's what Arya, Arya discovers. Uh, it's, it's such a great transition in this chapter because as this chapter starts out for the first couple pages, it's very lighthearted. Like she's describing cats and, you know, she's, she's hunkering down with a tomcat and, you know, even, even though the cat is the most ferocious of cats, it's still just a cat. So it's like, there's yeah. no like danger. It's very youthful and innocent. She runs into Tommen and Marcella, who are, of course, adorable, as we'll get into a little bit later. Um, and, you know, you, you read this first couple pages in this chapter with a wistful smile on your face. It feels very kind of young adult novel-ish. Again, very yeah. uh, young fantasy person training. And then and then you get, yeah, that, those dreams about the dripping blood. And then as she's she's hiding in this, this room, this cellar, after uh, bumping into Tommen and Marcella, all of a sudden, like you say, it's a haunted house. It's a monster story. Slowly the shapes around mm-hmm. her took on form. Huge, empty eyes stared at her hungrily through the gloom, and dimly she saw the jagged shadows of long teeth. <laughs> and it's just so creepy and wonderfully subtle that it's just like she doesn't just run slap-bang into them. She's in the room with them without realizing it. And then she gets used to the, adjusted to the light, and then she sees them. Like, that's just, that's so creepy and terrifying. Um, and of course, it's, it's, they're, they're dragon skulls, and it's, 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 uh, I, I absolutely love in this chapter that becomes about the Targaryen restoration plot. Arya stumbles onto, of course, Varys and Illyria talking about the Targaryen restoration, that she runs into dragon skulls. That's a wonderful symbol. Like she's, that's exactly what Varys and Illyria were trying to do is to restore these hidden dragons, the, the skulls that have been hidden away while the Baratheons took over and they're going to bring them to the surface. So it makes perfect sense that that scene would take place uh, next to this room of all rooms. But which dragons, right? Which dragons are Varys and Illyria trying to restore? I guess we'll talk about that mm-hmm. towards the end of this podcast. Excellent question. It's good. It's cool, too, if you think about it, to kind of not spoil it too much. But there's subtext hidden within subtext if we consider the Blackfire dragons as the dragons that have truly been hidden away and kept from the Red Keep even longer than the Red Dragons have. But again, we'll, we'll be talking about that towards the end of this podcast for sure. But no, it's 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 terrific stuff that Martin does here. And something that was not confirmed until season one of Game of Thrones was released on DVD in 2012 was that these two conspirators that Arya is seeing down in the bowels of the Red Keep are indeed Varys and Illyrio. Now, you could pretty easily see it from the context here. The Illyrio, the person that Arya is seeing, is very much described in the same ways that Daenerys describes Illyrio back in back in the Game of Thrones, back, back in Daenerys 1 and Daenerys 2. And, of course, Varys has the same sort of disguise that we're going to see him. We, we see him in back from Eddard's seventh chapter where he says he sees Varys with the you know, the beard and the, uh, the cape and the cowl and the, all that sort of stuff as well. So it's very much these guys are this, the schemers are in play here. And this is one of the few times, and I give credit to where it's due. Stephen Atwell has made this point. It's one of the few times that we see two schemers talking openly that don't have an agenda, that aren't trying to obscure part of what they're conspiring against or, or conspiring on behalf of. And it's similar. The only other time we see this is when Bran, of course, stumbles on to Jamie and Cersei talking up in the tower up in Bran 2 in Winterfell. And I think it's really interesting, too, if we keep that same connection going between Winterfell and the Red Keep and between these two kids, then having to come on to this conspiracy and having people talking openly about the things that are going on in Westeros and on into Essos that it's filtered through their lens, through their own particular youth, because Arya is all of nine years old in this chapter, or eight or nine years old in this chapter. Bran, of course, was seven years old back when he was pushed from the window back into Game of Thrones, Bran too, And that does 
you know, lead to some questions and a lot of great discussion, which we'll be getting into here. But yes, those conspirators, they're great, aren't they? Yes, indeed. And like you say, it's both a parallel and a contrast to what happened with Bran. Uh, that was in that was in the Winterfell and like the monsters at Winterfell are the gargoyles that Bran felt connected to. He kind of felt like they were friends and he was used to hanging yep. on to them. Here, the monsters are mo- presented as monsters and it's something that Arya <laughs> has to has to deal with, although it's the way she deals with them is, is in a way very similar to the conversation Bran and Ned have about kind of being brave in spite of your fear and working through your fears. There's the great line where she has to calm herself down when she sees the skulls and thinks to herself, the monsters were still there, but the fear was gone, which is great. Mm-hmm. That means that Sirio's teaching is working, that he's, he's done a, a good job with her, that she's able to kind of calm herself and rationally assess the situation, that it's... It, the, the skulls aren't going to go away if she closes her eyes and sits tight, but sh- she can't deal with their presence if she if she remembers what he has taught her. And yeah, uh, it's it's a wonderful touch on Martin's part, and I imagine this is deliberate. Given what happened to Bran, that he was discovered and pushed from the window uh, to to the cost of his legs, you're definitely expecting as a first time reader for Arya to be caught and something terrible to happen. Yeah. Something, but of course, uh, she manages. She hides herself in darkness. Darkness cloaks her, which is interesting. That's that's what, what Blood Raven will tell Bran later on when he gets to the cave, that darkness can protect you and be your mother's milk. Uh, mm-hmm. And it saves Arya here because they don't see her. And yeah, like you say, this is one of the rare times Varys is not pushing an agenda on someone. He's not trying to connive or wheedle something. He's not putting on a show. He's just talking to his partner in crime, the person he's right. probably the most honest with and knows the most about him. And they've been, they, as we learn in Dance with Dragons, have been partners in crime for quite a long time since they were youths, in fact. And it's, it, it's an interesting follow-up to Edward Seven in that that's when we first got to see Varys as more than just kind of a mincing, obsequious court fixture. And we got to see him as actually a an intelligent, cunning, charismatic guy with his fingers on every button. But this is the first time we really get to see that he has a plan of his own. That it's not just mm-hmm. him. It's not just him serving whoever he think will benefit him in the moment. He he has a scheme going on that is uh, above and beyond any of the people currently in King's Landing. He has connections to the Asosi plot, to the Targaryens, to Daenerys and Viserys, which we really had no hint of before. Uh, right. We had no hints that Varys and Illyrio were connected before they, the two of them show up in this chapter. And yeah, that's the, you know that's a significant. It's it's easy to forget that because we're just so used to oh yeah Varys and Illyrio partners. We've known that for so long as readers and as a fandom. You got to kind of got to put yourself back in the mindset of a first time reader. That's a big deal to realize. Oh, that there's. It's not just that they're the Targaryens are still alive in exile, working to come back. They have allies in Westeros, a very powerful ally in Westeros, in fact. And as we learn later in the books, and we'll get to later in this episode, it's debatable how loyal Varys actually is <laughs> to those particular Targaryens. But it's it's a great moment for a first-time reader of, you get a sense of the connections and cohesiveness of this universe. That, you know, the Targaryen associate plot is the most isolated storyline in this book, but now we see we get a real firm connection to what's going on in King's Landing, which is, is very useful for a reader, I think. It is. It's useful for us. Because Daenerys, Daenerys' story is, like you said, very isolated. So isolated, in fact, that Martin released it as a novella before the release of A Game of Thrones. All of Danny's 10 chapters in A Game of Thrones were released separately because it's so, so, so separate, separated out from the Westerosi plot. But here it gives us a great connection to Westeros and a potential pathway that Daenerys could have into Westeros through one of an, through an ally in the form of, of Varys the Spider. And of course, through Illyria, who was already her, her known ally as well. But there's all sorts of like interesting things about 
these characters. And I think the most interesting aspect about Varas and Illyrio being down in the Red Keep and, and how they're doing performative art down here in the Red Keep and how it speaks to their backgrounds and who they are and what they will be throughout the story. Yeah, it's interesting. Of course, Illyrio describes Varus as being like a wizard. Uh, you know, of course, they're, they're, both these characters are frequently connected to mummers and images about mummers. Uh, Illyrio also calls, calls Varus refers to himself as a juggler. Illyrio calls Varus a sorcerer. Uh, <laughs> they're talking about, of course, extremely significant political events. But yeah, there's this constant connection to them as, as performers. Um, and I, I one, one, one idea I love is that what Varus and Illyrio are kind of doing with the Targaryens is basically just a version of their old con writ large, where they would steal stuff from people and then sell it back to them. Mm -hmm. uh, and that they're basically doing that with the Targaryens and Westeros yep. in a way. And I think that's, that's a, a, a great, a great connection and a great way to think about these two characters is, yeah, the, there's, there's something very theatrical about what they're doing. Uh, and, and they have to put on a show for people. And of course, that connects to the Mummer's Dragon prophecy in the House of the Undying. And it connects to the character of young Griff that will meet and dance with dragons. You know, if you believe he's a Blackfire, if you believe he's the real deal, if you believe he's some random kid, the point is, is that Varus and Larry have to convince everyone that he's the real deal and they have to put on right. the show. And so that, you know, that the very core of their plan is a performance. And I think that's, that's an interesting thing to note too about these characters. Yeah. I do wonder... <laughs> I mean, I, it, it, there's there's moments throughout the story where I wish that we would get like Var inside Varus's head and find out like more of what he's about. Sure, but, but th in this moment, it's I'm not so more but so much wondering what is in Varus's head here because he is speaking openly. But when when Illyrio compares him to a sorcerer, you do have to wonder if if Varus is like you son of a bitch, like don't compare me, compare me to a sorcerer, given the fact that oh, a yeah. sorcerer had cut his junk off and and burned it and to potentially to the red god or as, as a form of sacrifice, like you have to think like that might've not been the happiest reference that Vars has, has ever heard of, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like it's yeah. Right. I hadn't thought of that. That's an excellent point. Wow. What a dick move on Illyrio's part. Cause he definitely knows about that. I assume. Yeah. So yeah, that's a, I had never put that together before, but yeah, that's, that's the, that's a point of comparison that Varus would, would hate more than anything else. Yeah. I don't know, man, but no, you're, you're right though, is that these guys are, they're they're performers at heart and we get their background essentially here with Varys's mummery and of course Illyrio as a bravo which we talk about a little bit as we go throughout this podcast here and their spies as well and there's their spies on behalf of Daenerys on behalf of Aegon on behalf of someone or something and that's uh yeah that's what the end game looks like right it is, and it's. Well, I mean, that's part of what makes this scene work so well. Is that, uh, as we've both said, this is the one scene in which they're dropping the performance as much as as much as they possibly can. This is them with their their fewest amount of disguises on. Yeah. The sense we get is that yeah, Varus is a juggler. He's trying to keep all these balls in the air. He's got all these different plans going all around him. He brings up Lysa. He brings up Stannis. Uh, he brings up Renly. This is the first time we really get Renly the Renly Terrell plot laid out directly. Uh, we got a strong hint of what was going on when. Ned brought up Renly comparing Marjorie to Lyanna, but now we get kind of Varus uh, ex exposing exactly what it is they got they got planned to going on. And yeah, you get you get the sense of of the Red Keep is kind of this this clusterfuck where all these threads are crossing, <laughs> all these plans trying to come to fruition at the same time. And Varus is is trying to express to Illyrio that you know, look, I can't even I with all my considerable skills. This is this is getting out of hand. This is getting out yeah. of control. And you know, we're, that's good because as a reader. 
we're kind of starting to feel that way as well. It's like, wow, there's just everyone, as Ned says, everyone's someone's informer. Everyone has a plan going on, and this has to go all, all go up in smoke eventually, which, of course, it will for Ned specifically uh, later on mm-hmm. in the book. But we get a little bit more about these uh, these schemers and the, the methods they use in infiltrating the Red Keep, and we get our first reference to the little birds. Of course, Vars has referenced that he has only the whisperings of little birds, but it's left ambiguous what he actually means here. Here, we're starting to see the shape of what these little birds actually are, and the lines are between him and Varas, and they're talking about, and this is as Arya's trying to follow them, so they're a bit farther away, so it's kind of broken conversation. But what Arya overhears is them, is Varas requesting to have 50 more birds with their tongues cut out, but treat them gently, and he needs more gold too. And that's just, bleh. of course, back in 2013, George R. R. Martin confirmed that the little birds do have. Uh, that the little birds do arrive to Varas with their tongues cut out. So that is something that Martin has said, has confirmed, uh, which is pretty explicit here again, but it's something that's been brought up in some fan conversations to what he's actually referring to here. But indeed, he has these children who can read and write that have their tongues removed in order to spy on his behalf because he needs them as their, their small bodies to get through these these very narrow tunnels and shafts through the Red Keep in order to spy on the different comings and goings on in the Red Keep and the different players that are performing and doing their own conspiring throughout the Red Keep, to include Jamie and Cersei, right? Exactly. And of course, the these uh, little birds step into the spotlight in the last published scene of the series so far at the end of A Dance with Dragons when they kind of yes. emerge from the shadows in this amazing scene to uh, to kill Kevon Lannister uh, with the daggers in their hands. Um which uh, <laughs> and they kill Pycelle in a kind of analogous scene in in the show at the end of season six, but yes. yeah, uh, that, that end of that conversation with Varys and Lyria, it's just it's just skin crawling. Every little word makes me flinch. Like I must have another fifty of them, and Illyria says so many. The ones you need are hard to find, hard to find. So how are you finding them, Illyria? Are they orphans? Are you picking them mm-hmm. off the streets? Are you killing their parents? Are you kidnapping them? Are they slaves? Like what's how 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 are you right. getting these kids? Where are they coming from? And he says, so young to know their letters, perhaps older, not die so easy. Oh, oh my God. God. Like, how many how many dead kids, Varus and Illyrio? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we, uh, obviously, a lot of characters' stories in the, in the Song of Ice and Fire revolve around one or two specific kids and whether or not they're going to be killed. Ned with Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella. Stannis with Edric and Shireen. Jamie with Bran. But now, oh, we're talking dozens or hundreds of kids that have gone through this kind of machine with Varus and Illyrio yeah. over the years, how much blood is on their hands. So I think this is something we have to keep in mind when analyzing and discussing Varus as a character when he talks about later on about, you know, fighting on behalf of the realm and how he wants to bring in young Griff to heal Westeros and he will know his duty to the people and he's been through hardships. I'm sure Varus believes that, at least at some level, but the cost, man, like the the, the amount of innocent children that have suffered for, for his the sake of his spycraft... It's just staggering. And, you know, it's even even Illyrio, who is no one's idea of like a <laughs> magnanimous, generous, sweethearted guy. Even he is saying if they kept their tongues I, and the virus is now the risk, the risk is too much, which is interesting because <laughs> when you think about little birds spying on people, you know, what comes to mind automatically is uh, like blood raven and skin changers using birds to sure. directly speak messages, as, as said the children of the forest and the first men were able to do. Uh, but you know the irony here is not only are these quote unquote little birds actually children, human children, 
but they they don't get they don't get to speak at all. They they completely lose their tongues. And yeah, that is that is just that is a brutal brutal aspect of Varus's character. And while I'm I'm sympathetic to Varus in some respects when it comes to his backstory, when it comes to his his seemingly sincere desire to do right by Westeros, this is where I really this is what gives me pause about him as a person. Is is, is what yeah. he's done to these kids. I 100% agree with that. It's awful considering that he's using children in his own estimation for the good of the realm. And Varus, more than anyone, any other character, and I know, know that people have said that Tywin Lannister is like this, but I, I will disagree with this um, as we talk about Tywin Lannister in later chapters. But Varus is very much a consequentialist in that he is an ends justify the means sort of dude where he thinks the ultimate good in Westeros is having this prepared prince and having Aegon come in and liberate the realm and rule well for a thousand years or so, or whatever it is that, that Aragorn, <laughs> Aragorn ruled well for a hundred years or something like that. Wisely and well. Yep, exactly. Yes. Yeah. But for him, the the cost is worth, the, the juice is worth a squeeze. The cost is awful. And, you know, treat them gently is something that gets mentioned here as well. So there is, it, it does not justify it whatsoever, but there is, I don't even know how you would describe it. He's not cruel. Yeah. I mean, Varus isn't enjoying yeah. this, but that almost makes him more dangerous because it's not even for himself. Because if right. if you think what you're doing is for the good of the overall realm, for the greater good, and you have this kind of utilitarian philosophy, there's no limit to how many people you're willing to hurt before you get there. And then right. this is something we'll discuss, obviously, a lot more in the series as we go. But Varus is very much a parallel to Melisandre in this regard, I think. Yeah. And that's why some folks have said that true believers are sometimes more dangerous than those who are just motivated by by finances or by money or by something that can be more easily manipulated or controlled. I mean, Varus is willing to do close to anything to get his ultimate good, in his opinion, established in Westeros. When Varus tells Ned that about Stannis that there is no creature on earth half so terrifying as a truly just man, whether he knows it or not, he's also talking about himself there. He is that. And I think that about takes us to our likes and dislikes for this chapter. For me, my, my like is pretty simple. We did kind of skip over it a little bit. Um, here, but that's fine. In that, I my mini like for this chapter is I like seeing Tom and Marcella here, our doomed little angels, to use Emmett's parlance. <laughs> True, they are. Bless, they, bless they their are. doomed blonde hearts. Ah, uh, yeah. They get. They, I mean, like the, the cool thing about them is that these kids are giving, giving Arya a lot of scruff because they think that she's abusing the cat, and they're not about to let that happen. And yeah, they are kind of engaging in a bit of classicism here and thinking that she's like the rat kitchen. She's some sort of peasant or whatnot. But their defense of the cat is more rooted in their desire to protect an animal from abuse, and that's great and adorable. Yeah. Compared so, to compared to Joffrey cutting a cat open. Right. Exactly. Yeah. What went wrong with Joffrey and how did Tom and Marcella emerge from that is a discussion we'll have to have some way, some at some juncture down the road. When we, it's, a, it's cute. It's a nice callback to this moment in Game of Thrones where Tom and Marcella are defending this cat. And then Tom, again, has cats in a Feast for Crows, his little retinue as he's walking around with uh, throughout Feast and, and Cersei's point of view. To the annoyance of Cersei, which is always a bonus in my opinion. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Tom and Marcella very much embody innocence in general, but especially in this chapter. And that fits because, as we say, you know, this chapter starts off very innocent with Arya running around chasing cats and then kind of segs into a more scary, dramatic adult mode with the dragon skulls and with Varys and Illyrio. Mm -hmm. And it seems likely that Tom and Marcella are going to die as part of the uh, part of the Griff and Young Griff conquest of King's Landing and the surrounding areas. They might not yep. get killed directly by members of Team Griff, but as part of that overall process seems very likely. So you could almost say that, yeah, the, the dragon skulls Arya finds and the conspirators she finds near that room are the ones who will kill Tommen and Marcellus. So you could kind of see an arc of 
one of Martin's favorite topics, the death of innocence in this chapter. And yeah, uh, yeah, Tom and Marcella are, are just are just pure little souls. And you do get the sense oh that they're gosh. just they're just looking out for the cat. I just I think of the the girl in Jurassic Park when uh when the, the like they lower the goat into like the raptor cage and she says, What's gonna happen to the goat? And it's just like her <laughs> eyebrows are all like arched and concerned. And it's like you know what ha- you know what's gonna happen to the goat, sweetie, but good good that yeah. good that you're looking out for the animals. Um and yeah, there's there's a real sense of concern and care from them. So yeah. yeah. And of course, yeah, everyone loves Tom and his his wonderful cats, especially Sir Pounce. Yes, indeed. Um, my, my, my dislike for this chapter is as much as I love this chapter, I, I don't really love the last few lines of the, this chapter about what if a wizard attacks and about killing wizards. And I don't think it pe- really packs much of a punch. Yeah, I, I get it. There's irony there. Yes, Ned Stark will get his head chopped off and Desmond will die. And those 50 men that Ned has will no, will not be enough. Yeah, I, I get it. But it's kind of a wonky framing for irony here, which is something that George likes to engage in. He doesn't usually really – he usually does it pretty well, but here he just doesn't do it as well here. Is Varys the wizard? Will Varys play a role in Ned's death? I mean, not not really, right? It just kind of feels like George fell in love with the wizard motif and then kind of let it go a little too far. And really the line – no fear on that count, little lady. Lord Eddard's guarded night and day. He'll come to no harm is a much better ending for this chapter. Yeah, I think you nailed it there with Martin falling a little too in love with his irony, um, which is fine. But sometimes it can be a little simplistic or cheap. And like you say, ending it with him declaring that Ned's going to be protected. That's all the irony you need uh, right. to close this chapter out with. And I think, as I was saying before you we were recording, that I think this particular contrast works much better when Arya meets up with Thoros in the Riverlands yes. in a storm of swords and thinks to herself that's Thoros of Mir he doesn't look like a wizard from old man stories <laughs> he's all skinny and sad looking and his clothes are a mess and that gets at the irony I think much more effectively where Martin is communicating that yes the wizards in old man story are real they're just not necessarily they don't look like uh, the way the back to the house of the undying. They don't look the way the undying present themselves as, with the nice robes and the t- the, the triangle hats and the classic Merlin right. look. They look like real human beings who sweat and exactly. suffer and make mistakes. So I think that I think Martin does a better job with this theme later on. I agree. Agreed, hundred percent. So what about you? What do you like and dislike about this chapter? Something I like that's uh, very simple but very effective in this chapter is that Martin does not have Varus and Delirio refer to each other by name. It would have been the easiest thing, and a kind of a lesser, a lazier author would have Varus go, as you know, Magister Illyrio Mapatis of Pentos. <laughs> and Illyrio would go, well, Varus the Spider, Master of Whisperers, uh, just to, you know, hammer home for the audience who these guys are. Uh, we, we can figure out who they are by context. I think even readers exactly. who are not super into tracking down every little detail can, can probably figure out who these guys are, uh, yep. just from the physical descriptions. Uh, like the uh, Illyrio's weight, uh, the way Varus moves, the fact that Arya says Varus sounds familiar. You can, you can, yeah. even, even the very fact that Varus is describing every plotter in the city except Varus kind of gives away that he's right. Varus. Yes. So you can figure it out by context and it would feel really stiff and unnatural for them to be referring to each other by name when, again, they don't think anyone else is listening and they know each other so well. So I think right. that, that was, right. I think that was a good decision on Martin's part. Yeah. It's, it's great that. Varas and Illyria, you can you have there's context clues in this chapter which indicate who they are. Again, looking back at those earlier Daenerys chapters and seeing how Daenerys views Illyrio and seeing how she's 
looking at his physical appearance and making these constant references to him and also his forked yellow beard. That's also a, a line that's used in this chapter, too. There's context clues here that we can use to identify these people without George, of course, coming on saying it, which he ended up doing anyways. But yeah, it's, it's absolutely great that these characters are not referred to by name because when you know when you're talking with your friend, you're not like Ah Emmett of House Philadelphia, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, it's it's just uh, it, it's more like uh, it's more natural for them to be referring to each other and more of these kind of sobriquets and different titles and way and, and ironic ways of talking about themselves as wizards and sorcerers and different things like that, that just works a whole lot better as, as a framing device for us, under, us as readers understanding who these guys are in this chapter. Agreed. Uh, something I don't like so much in this chapter is, of course, the end of this chapter hinges on Ned not taking Arya seriously. Because if Ned did, yep. I mean, I don't know how much of an impact it would necessarily have. It's not going to save Ned from Cersei and Littlefinger. It would definitely change how he feels about Varys, and it would change how the whole Targaryen restoration plan goes if Varys gets outed at this point. But, of course, for the plot, Ned has to not believe Arya. And I get, of course, Arya jumbles up the words. She's a small child. She's talking really fast. Ned is distracted. I get why he doesn't take her seriously. But it's I find it a little weird how kind of blithe and dismissive he is about these two strangers walking around the basement of the castle, talking about the wolf and the lion and the bastard and him. And, like, I feel like Ned should be a little intrigued by that, even if he doesn't agree with Arya about the threat to his own life. I mean, keep in mind, this this is not Ned's first day in the city. Like, he, he already knows, he's already had that line, is everyone someone's informer in this cursed city? Right. He already knows that Cersei is actively trying to kill Robert. He already knows that people are spying on him. It would have been very easy, I think, for to have him dismiss Arya's fear for his life specifically, but also attempt to investigate it. Like, have one line in the next Ned chapter where it's like, Ned tried to follow up on these two mysterious men, but no, they could not could not find anyone who describe them in the castle yes. and then just move on and just have Ned deal with that. Cause as it's, as it stands, it feels like Ned is just suddenly not paranoid anymore when in the context of the Ned chapters, he is very much paranoid. So that's a little weird yeah. for me. It, it's weird for me too. And there's a line that s- strikes me as specifically weird because the next chapter is all about it. And it's quote, the fat one said the princess was with child. The one, the steel cap, he had the torch. He said that they had to hurry. I think he was a wizard. It would have been, a nice Ned moment in Eddard 8 to have this whole discussion about what to do with Daenerys Targaryen and the fact that she's pregnant. And this is something that really underlines what's going. This is something that is a huge part of this chapter and ends up being a pivotal moment where Ned makes a crucial decision in his arc in King's Landing for Ned to have thought, well, that's weird that my daughter had found out about this had heard about that the the princess was with child. I wonder if that's connected to Daenerys Targaryen being with child since she's a exiled princess over in Essos and Vars is bringing me this information. That's, that's odd, right? That's strange. But no, he never makes that connection necessarily because of course the next line is Ned saying a wizard. Did he have a long beard and a tall pointed hat speckled with stars? So Ned dismisses it here in this moment, but it would have been nice to have Ned think, back to it in this the next Ned chapter and been like, I'm not sure that Arya was necessarily wrong here. What exactly did Arya hear? I need to like look into this a little bit more. Yeah. But of course, yeah, it doesn't happen and that's fine. It's fine. Uh, it, all these little like, yeah, you know, right? I'm not saying it has to affect the plot, but yeah, like you say, it just has a couple lines. Like, you know, 
Compared to when Sansa says that, you know, Joffrey's nothing like that drunken old king. And Ned looks at her and goes, oh, my God, you just figured it out. You just right. revealed the entire plot. Like, he takes Sansa very... I mean, obviously, Sansa doesn't know what she's saying, but Ned takes his daughter's words very seriously in that moment, and it has an impact on his decision-making. So, yeah, Ned Ned feels oddly dickish in this, this scene with Arya in a way that doesn't really seem to yes. fit Ned. It feels more like something like Tywin might say to his kids very dismissively. So, uh, yeah, obviously, our, it, the whole plot was never going to get broken open right here. Ned was never going to figure out what Varys was up to. But... I, I wish it had been addressed in a, in a less kind of dismissive way because it does feel kind of like Martin is, you know, like dangling an out for Ned and then snatching it away very kind of crudely. So I think I think that could have been smoothed over a little better. Minor complaint, but I think it could have been dealt with easily. You know, the, the thing is, as we've both said, Martin gets progressively better in his prose and in his unraveling of how these different characters think as he as he's progressing between each book. So by A Dance with Dragons, we're not seeing as many of these issues. I think there are still, they still prop up from time to time, but I think it's much more complex as well as better written as we're, as we're going on. But you know, that's again, it's minor, but that's, that's fine. But I think that about takes us to our foreshadowing and groundwork phase of this episode. So we're going to talk a whole lot about Vars and Illyrio here at towards the end of this episode, but we do have a couple things that are outside of Vars and Illyrio here. The uh, one thing, and I'm a little bit proud of myself, so I'll just say that up front. Um, a little bit proud of myself for finding the cats and the cats as potential symbolism for the six different types of people currently in the Red Keep and or the five different types of people currently in the Red Keep and the one potentially to come. So the quote is, the Red Keep was full of cats, lazy old cats dozing in the sun, cold eyed mousers twitching their tails, quick little kittens with claws, lady cats, ragged shadows prowling with prowling the mitten heap. And one black-eared devil of a tomcat. So I think we, Martin is doing a little bit of his good work here in that he's subtly, t- he's subtly telling us who the different characters are in the Red Keep. So lazy old cats who are constantly dozing. I think that's Grandmaster Picel dozing off at small council meetings, being kind of this dude that's <laughs> lazy and old and not particularly adept at his job and easily caught as uh, Tyrion is going to catch him in A Clash of Kings as the one who attempts to inform on Cersei. He's really not that good. Uh, cold-eyed mousers. I think that's Littlefinger and a smile that really never meets his eyes, as Sansa points out in Sansa 2, and something that we also see throughout his arc where he's always smiling, but he's the smile never meets his eyes. I love the little phrase. We also see him brown Ben Plump, too, in A Dance with Dragons. Quick little kittens. Tommen, Marcella, Joffrey, maybe even Arya. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Lady cats. That's Sansa herself right there. Maybe Catelyn, too. Ragged shadows prowling the mitten heaps. Hmm. I think that might be Varys and Illyrio because they are the folks who are, because in the chapter itself, Varys and Illyrio are constantly shrouded by shadows. The use of shadow imagery surrounds them throughout. Varys is carrying a torch here and his shadows are bouncing off of the walls and, you know, surrounding Illyrio. And the shadow actually, of course, then keeps Arya hidden from their, their being found because they are only a few feet from Arya at one point in the chapter. And then finally, the one-eared black devil of a tomcat could be Drogon, perhaps, could be symbolizing the Targaryens as a whole, because we know that cat is likely to be Rainey's cat. We'll talk about that here in a moment. Um, or 
it, it could be the retcon Blackfire Dragon, given the Tomcats moniker as the quote unquote Black Bastard. And the, of course, the Blackfires are the Black Bastard. Children of Aegon IV rebelled against the Red Dragons during the first Blackfire Rebellion, something we talked about at the beginning of this episode. So those are just some things, potential catches that Martin had inserted into this chapter here. And I really like that idea of symbolizing characters with the use of cats. You should be rightfully proud of that, sir. That's a great catch. I was thinking vaguely about what Martin might be up to with all those descriptions when I, I uh, reread this chapter, but I had not connected it so perfectly to the characters. And yeah, I think it's I think that's a great touch. It's um, like you say about Littlefinger and his smile not reaching his eyes. That fits perfectly with how Arya describes the cold-eyed mousers twitching their tails. The fact that the ladies' cats are all combed and trusting. That fits Sansa mm. and Catelyn both well, because of course Sansa trusts Cersei when she shouldn't. Catelyn trusts Littlefinger when she shouldn't. So that fits both of them beautifully. And yeah, the, the, the shadows, as you say, the shadow imagery is so strong with Varys and Illyrio in this chapter. And they're prowling the midden heaps the same way Varys and Illyrio kind of prowling underneath the Red Keep. Yes. I think that analog works wonderfully. Interesting that uh, the other possibility for a, a black bastard analog is, of course, John, since he is a bastard hmm. reportedly. Interesting. And he is, he is a Night's Watchman wearing a black cloak. He's even called the Black Bastard of the Wall when Arya, Interesting. Arya yeah. hears about him in Braavos. Uh, I don't know really know what to, that would have to do with Arya, quote unquote, catching John. Maybe that's left over from when Arya and John were supposed <laughs> to be together in the pitch letter romantically. Um, but oh yeah, but the I mean, it doesn't fit in terms of the cat being kind of like nasty and spitting and like you know that, that that's not John like at all. But the, no. that, that strikes me as another possible parallel there. Yeah, I never considered that Jon Snow would be the uh, black the black bastard. I think that's that's great. I think that works really really well. Um, something I'd never even seen. I was thinking too much into like the black fires and Drogon and stuff like that without even seeing the black bastard that is very much in play at this point in the chapter with Jon Snow being a bastard up at the wall. But there's a little bit more foreshadowing here as well in that when Arya is down there in the black dungeons, we get her remembering of her dream about the Red Keep and we get some potential Ned Stark death foreshadowing here where the quote is, sometimes she would hear her father's voice, but always from a long way off. And no matter how hard she ran after it, it would grow fainter and fainter until it faded to nothing. So, again, George is pretty much over the top saying Ned Stark is going to die here. Arya will try to reach out to Ned Stark in her final chapter and attempt to save him feebly, as, as we find out, because there's really no way that Arya can truly save Ned Stark here. And again... Martin is continuously hinting in these early chapters, and we're now in the middle of the middle of the books now. These middle book, middle chapters of the book as well, that Ned Stark is doomed, and he will eventually fade to nothing, as he will meet the business end of Ilan Payne's blade at the end of a Game of Thrones. Yeah, that's a it's a great touch about Ned's foreshadowing. Um, it's it's interesting to consider. Uh, you know, we consider Ned's death the big shock moment of the first book, but yeah, when you come back to it, there are all these little images and little moments that clearly clearly suggests that his, his family's going to lose him. And that's, you know, that, that, that is so heartbreaking. Not just that Ned's dying, but that Arya's chasing after him and wants to catch him, but she can't. And that is, that is pretty much exactly what's going to happen when he's executed. She's trying to force her way through the crowd, but then she can't do it. Yeah, that's very sad. Very, very sad. On a more lighter note, of course, because we always have to have lighter notes following darker moments, that Tomcat, we've been talking about him throughout this chapter. Who is that Tomcat, right? It's not... 100% certain, but a lot of fans, and I would count myself among them, believe that that black tomcat is none other than Balerion. No, not the Black Dread, the, the dragon that Aegon the Conqueror rode. No, Balerion, Rainey's cat that had survived the Sack of King's Landing 
and had lived on. And, uh, you know, as reference, far as references that Black Cat at the end of Game of Thrones at her 15. And we also see that Black Cat popping up all over the place, meeting up with Sansa in A Clash of Kings, and also seemingly still alive even by the epilogue from A Dance of Dragons, where Kevin Lannister is talking with Tommen. And Tommen is at this point scared of the Black Cat. You know, there's a... um which has led to some theorizing, which I won't get into right now, about whether the Black Cat will have a, a part to play in Tommen's death or downfall. But it's that that Black Cat is still there, and I think that it's Rainey's cat as a survivor of Robert's Rebellion is at this point working in concert with those Targaryen dragon skulls as a reminder that the Targaryens once lived in this castle, built this castle, and are potentially symbolized to come back at some point in either the Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring. Yeah, it's it's a a nice little touch, as you're saying, you know, earlier about the cats that are parallel to people in the Red Keep. This is kind of the most direct connection between a cat and a person in the Red Keep, one that was literally owned by a person. Uh, and, yeah. and it, you know, it's an interesting connection between Arya and the Targaryen regime that's very different from the dragon skulls themselves. You know, you have the, a live animal versus a dead animal, a small animal versus a big one, a normal, normal by our real world standards versus a mythical one. But it's, it's the same connection <laughs> going on. So I like that a lot. Yeah, I like that a lot, too. Keeping in that same vein of cats, what about that cat, right? We meet another cat in a Feast for Crows, don't we? True, of course. When Arya gets to Bravo, she will, of course, adopt the moniker cat, Cat of the Canals. There's a chapter titled that in Feast for Crows, which I really love, which is kind of actually takes the form of this chapter in a lot of ways. It's all about like Arya running around and getting into scrapes and getting in the corners of, of little places. So... Yeah, that's that's that that imagery is pretty consistent through her story. Who knows, of course, if Martin had that planned out when he was writing this chapter the first time. But, you know, it, it might have been something he seized on later as the perfect name for Arya, both because of her mother's name and because of this this cat imagery early on in her story. You know, you never know how much Martin has in mind or how much of it developed through his his guarding style of writing. But whether he had the cat of the canals moniker already picked out at that point, it's, it's unclear again. Those POV pseudonyms come up starting in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. And you, you, you don't know. I like to think maybe he had an idea of, of Arya adopting both the, the cat moniker for symbolizing the cats that she's catching here in, in A Game of Thrones, as well as symbolizing her mother as well. It could be. It, it could be that Martin had this, had this in mind, you know, back in you know the mid-90s when he's writing this chapter. Or it could be something that he went back, of course, and was reading a Game of Thrones like, ah, oh, this would be a good way of doing this POV name for, for Arya and this identity that Arya takes on in A Feast for Crows. How about Cat of the Canals, right? I think that's probably more that's probably more likely, but you never know, really. Yeah, I agree. I think that's it's probably more likely Martin going back and, and picking up on that thread as a nice touch, uh, especially after... Uh, Catelyn dies and Arya as Nymeria pulls her body from the river. I think that yeah. that makes a nice touch, especially like, you know, Cat of the Rivers versus Cat of the Canals. I think there's there's a lot of nice little resonances there. And then finally, for our, our foreshadowing groundwork piece, we did reference this, so I'll go over this very quickly. We do get a bit of indication that Martin always had Illyrio's backstory in mind, where Arya is looking at Illyrio and she thinks... Grossly fat, yet he seemed to walk lightly, carrying his weight on the balls of his feet as a water dancer might. And then in A Dance of Dragons, Tyrion 1, Illyria reveals that he was once near as poor, a bravo in soiled silks living by my blade. Perhaps you chanced to glimpse the statue by my pool. And of course, that statue is him as a lithe water dancer with his sword in hand as a young, skinny man. And it's always made... It's always been interesting to me that Illyria, despite his gigantic size, is able to move 
quickly and lightly. That's brought up in Tyrion's chapters in Against Dragons. Again, it's brought up here in this Arya chapter. And that has led to some awful theorizing that Illyrio has some sort of glamour on or something like that. And he's only pretending to be fat. But I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it's just more a character moment that is showing Illyrio's backstory here early on before Martin reveals it more fully in A Dance with Dragons. I agree. But it's, yeah, it's a nice touch to have Arya think of Illyrio as moving like a water dancer. Because otherwise you you might feel like this chapter is a little disjointed with like, first it's about Arya's training with a cat, and then it segs into the Varus and Illyrio plot chapter. Uh, so ha- having Arya think of Illyrio as moving like a water dancer is a nice way to kind of link those two parts of the chapter together. On that same note, now we come to what you guys have probably been looking forward to us discussing, and that is the question that is on the minds of people even at the end of A Dance with Dragons. And that is, what exactly is Varys and Illyrio's plan at this point in the story in A Game of Thrones, and how does it evolve throughout the story? Emmett, take us away on what the fuck is going on with this chapter and what these guys are trying to do at this juncture in the story and how their plots evolve throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, this is a really complicated question, even more so, I would argue, than tracking what Littlefinger is doing, because at least Littlefinger eventually starts telling Sansa everything. And Varys and Illyrio really have yet to get to that point. You have occasional little scenes like with Varys and Ned in the Black Cells, Varys and Kevon at the end of A Dance with Dragons, where he seems to be unburdening himself. But we never really get the straight monologue on what they're doing. So you kind of have to piece bits and pieces together. So the, the, the main kind of thrust of what they're talking about, what they need to do now, is that Illyrio says they need to, quote, delay. Delay this fight between the wolf and the lion. Delay civil war in Westeros because, quote, what good is war now? Now, this suggests that long before Varys kills Kevon to sow disharmony at the end of A Dance with Dragons, saying it'll set the Lannisters and Trolls at each other's throats, the plan was to have a civil war to weaken their opponents and prime Westeros to embrace a Targaryen savior. But uh, not yet, as they say, because uh, <laughs> Danny and the Cow just got married, the Dothraki are not ready to go, so they need to, they need to hold off for a little while so that the timing can be precise, which, which suggests they're thinking really precisely about the timing here, that they, they want Westeros yeah. to... What they're worried about is that the war will be over, I guess, before their savior is ready, that the civil war will be over and done with, and that Westeros will already have settled on, you know, the Lannisters or Stannis or somebody else, and they, they need they need to have the multi-faction uh, fight going hot and heavy by the time their savior shows up. Right. Uh, in terms of who they intended to be fighting that civil war, Varys says that, quote, Stannis Baratheon and Lysa Arryn have fled beyond my reach, and the whispers say that they are gathering swords around them. Them gathering swords around them, of course, is good for his plan to have a civil war, but the fact that he says they fled beyond his reach, that suggests that he had some plan of manipulating them while they were still in King's Landing. Now, Varys says mm. he cl- Varys claims he was not involved in Stannis learning about the Twincess, so perhaps he was kind of holding that in his back pocket to, like, reveal Cersei's treason to the Middle Baratheon brother, and maybe to Jon and Lysa as well at a later date, once his pawns yeah. and Essos were ready to go, and kind of use that as a way to get... Stannis to fight a war against the Lannisters, thus weakening both of them uh, before the, their Targaryen army could show up. Varys also brings up the Renly Terrell plot. This is the first time we really get it laid out explicitly. We got the clue, as I said earlier, about Marjorie and Lyanna uh, being similar looking, and that was a hint as to what Renly was up to, but now Varys lays it out specifically that they want... Renly's planning to have Marjorie replace Cersei as the queen, and the Tyrells replace the Lannisters as the kind of the rich house that is the benefactor of the crown. Uh, and Varys is presenting that as a threat, so clearly they do not want Robert to gain a new benefactor house, because Robert's current benefactor house has this weakness, the twincess, that they can exploit. They can yes. use as a weapon against the Lannisters anytime they want. The Tyrells do not have any such weakness, and if anything, are more rich and powerful than the Lannisters. So that is definitely 
That is a situation Varus and Illyria want to avoid at all costs. But where things get really confusing, and this is where I'm going to turn it more over to you because I think you do a great job at kind of tracing these threads, is when we get to Essos in A Dance with Dragons and we learn about not only Griff and Young Griff, but the Golden Company as this this great sellsword army that they're, they're intending to use as part of their plan to take over Westeros. And uh, in, in the chapter of The Lost Lord, John Connington's first POV chapter, the officers of the Golden Company are arguing about what to do. And uh, homeless Harry Strickland is protesting, the plan, the plan. And, oh, <laughs> which plan, said Tristan Rivers? The fat man's plan, referring to Illyrio, the one that changes every time the moon turns. First, Viserys Targaryen was to join us with 50,000 Dothraki screamers at his back. First, implying that that's the early plan. That's the you right. know, earliest in the series plan, that this may well have been the plan in the Game of Thrones during this chapter. But uh, there are so many details that complicate that that I, I think I'm going to have to turn over you to sketch out, sir, because they make my brain hurt. Great job on unpacking what's going on with, with Westeros and, and Varys and Illyrio for their shortcomings as conspirators. They are identifying weaknesses in their own plans here. And I think that's a testament to them as planners and that they're like, this is not going well. We need to adjust what we're doing and how we're doing it in order to get there. But when we talk about about what's going on in Essos, it gets very complicated because there's really two possibilities here. So if Tristan Rivers' account is an accurate telling of both what the Colden Company was planning and more importantly, an accurate account of what Varys and Illyria are up to, the plan seems to be that Danny would wed Khal Drogo, something that Illyrio had sponsored in the Game of Thrones Daenerys 2. And then at some point down the road, the Dothraki and the Golden Company would join forces and co-invade Westeros together. That's kind of the answer we're presented with in text, but I've, I've got so many freaking questions about this. It, it doesn't make sense. And, and I'll just say that up front. It doesn't make sense if this was the actual plan. But I'll, I'll give you my top three questions for it. One. If Viserys and the Dothraki and Aegon and the Golden Company invade together, would Viserys or Aegon sit the Iron Throne at the end of their successful campaign? From what we can gather from the epilogue from Game of Thrones, Varys is talking about Aegon as this, oh, this great guy, and he's a fantastic, he's swum rivers, he's, you know, tended in fishnets, he's hunted, he's starved, he's been hunted. All of these different things when he's talking about how much he... He admires this guy. Whereas in the case of Viserys, as we saw in Danny's first chapter, Illyrio looks at Viserys and it's clear that he's playing him in some way. It's clear that he doesn't look at him very favorably in, in any at all. Where the line is after Viserys is talking about, oh, he will kill Robert Baratheon himself with his own sword. And Illyrio says, that would be most fitting, your grace. And Daenerys sees something behind his eyes, like the smile there, but Viserys doesn't. So it's clear that Danny is seeing something about Illyrio that he doesn't necessarily want to reveal at this point. But Danny, being the smart person that she is, is able to see through his deceptions and see through the fact that that Illyrio is playing him at, at some level. So who sits the iron throw at the end of that? Probably Aegon, but what are they going to do with Viserys? Because Varys, the, the second point is Varys and Illyrio are intent on enshrining Aegon with the physical instruments of power. 
the crown, the black fire sword potentially, a proper religious education, trainings befits a knight, and then every man origin story, etc., etc. You know, given this, would they really want their prepared prince at the head of a barbarian army to spoiling Westeros? Wouldn't that just craft just shitty optics around Aegon to have Aegon leading the Dothraki, raping and pillaging their way through Westeros? It doesn't seem like it's a good foundation for him as a king. And then my final question for this point is, what is Daenerys' role here in the story? Illyrio later tells Tyrion in Tyrion's second chapter in Dance of Dragons that he didn't expect Danny to survive the Dothraki Sea, but that really doesn't lend itself to the Dothraki then turning to Viserys and Aegon to lead them into Westeros. Even if Illyrio's plan was for Daenerys to die by poisoning to rouse the Dothraki for war, why would they follow Viserys who they despise? Moreover, why would they follow Aegon, who they've never met before? It, it doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, there's, there's, it, it kind of boggles my mind that this would be the actual plan that in place. It seems fraught with all sorts of possibilities and with all sorts of shortfalls that just doesn't work. So that's led to an alternative theory, which is a fan theory at this point. So just putting that up front, this is not in the text itself. It, it could be subtext, though. So the alternate theory is that Illyrio Mopatis sold Harry Strickland and the Golden Company on invading Westeros to install Aegon onto the Iron Throne because the Dothraki would be with them to offset their numerical advantage against the armies of Westeros. But, and this is important, in true Illyrio Vara's fashion, this wasn't the actual plan. The true plan was to send the Dothraki and Viserys into Westeros first to wreak havoc and kill their enemies before Aegon and the Golden Company would show up as the liberating force and save Westeros from these barbarians. You know, it's it's a great theory. It's one that I probably find myself find myself aligning to as believable, as plausible, but there's really all sorts of questions here. Like, wouldn't the Golden Company tell Lyrio and Forrest to pound sand if they figured out that they were being lied to? And I think you have a question too, right? Yeah, my question here is, I mean, the one advantage to the Golden Company teams up with the Dothraki theory, then you have a huge army, like, uh, you know, that can legitimately probably conquer all of Westeros. But if the plan is to, for the Golden Company to beat the Dothraki and then hold Westeros, that seems kind of a stretch. I mean, the Golden Company are, of course, a logistically advanced army that can punch well above their weight in terms of numbers. We see that in John Khan's invasion of the Stormlands. You don't need many members of the Golden Company to do well. But, you know, there's there you lose one battle and you're in trouble with their amount of numbers against the Dothraki and then you have to hold Westeros. So, yeah, I think th- that that raises its own questions. I agree with uh, completely the, the holes you were poking in what Tristan Rivers says is the plan to have the Dothraki team up with the Golden Company. That doesn't make really any sense in terms of Viserys unless you're going to unless you're going to kill him. But Illyrio very passively lets Viserys go out of his jurisdiction onto the Dothraki Sea and doesn't seem right. to really work to hold him back. I agree even more with the idea that it's it's horrible optics to have Aegon lead the Dothraki into Westeros because, and this is a question Danny will have to face uh, in in OTL in the series as it goes on. What do you do with the Dothraki once the conquest is over? Do you right. send them back to Essos with spoils? Are they going to be up for that, or are they going to want to take land and hold on to what they've stolen? That's gonna it's going to yeah. be hard to get even diehard Targaryen loyalists on board with that. I would think. Oh, I agree. And uh, and so much as we know about. We know from Varys' speech to Kevon at the end of Dance, so much about his his plan for Aegon is to have him be this image of a perfect prince, as you say, as the, the ideal kind of a warrior king who has suffered what the small folk have suffered and can be more relatable and lovable than Tommen will ever be. But yeah, right. that, that doesn't work if you're at the head of an army that's not only 
kind of racially and geographically other to Westeros, which the Golden Company is much less so, but also yeah. is, is known for just scorched earth conquest and attitudes towards prisoners of war that make, make Westerosi armies look pacifist by comparison. Right. Yeah. Pretty so, much. I mean, even, even Tywin, I think, would flinch at a lot of what Drogo gets up to, uh, when you get to the Lazarine territory. In, in Danny's chapters in the Game of Thrones, e- even by yeah. Westerosi standards, it's the sheer scale and consistency of brutality is just is just staggering. So how how do you manage that? Right. And and, and as you say, if you if you if you're going to kill off both Viserys and Daenerys, how do you get the Dothraki involved at all? What was the point of even having the Drogo Daenerys marriage? So yeah, yeah, on the whole, I would lean towards the the second theory, as you say, the that. Uh, you send the Dothraki in first to kind of soften Westeros up and get them in need of a savior. And then Egan shows up with the Golden Company. But in that case, yeah, it's weird that Tristan Rivers has that line at all in that case. Why right. why, why even tell them that that was the plan? So it's it's really, really confusing. <laughs> and this gets kind of into the meta side of it. And that sure. I think a lot of the confusion here may, be, may stem from the fact that George R. R. Martin had not invented the Blackfires yet. And there's a possibility, too, that he hadn't invented the Aegon subplot either. Now, I think I tend to more fall in the camp that there was always going to be a Targaryen pretender that was in the cards for the Song of Ice and Fire. But it is telling that there is no mention of some sort of mummer's dragon or false dragon landing in Westeros and Danny having to contend with him in the pitch letter back from 1993. And of course, there are limitations to that pitch letter because George had only written, you know, about 13 chapters of the book so far. Most likely Arya 3 was not among those chapters at that point since this is chapter 32 of the books itself. But again, I think there's a lot of like early genre weirdness here that does end up evolving into the Blackfire subplot, the potential Blackfire subplot. And, you know, it, that weirdness is even felt in the character of someone like the Lost Lord, John Connington, because what's up with that business? If one hand can die, why not a second? You know, you have danced this dance before, my friend. That reads kind of wonky, right? We know that Varys had nothing to do with John Aaron's death. So, who are they talking about? There's been a fan theory that's popped up I've seen the past couple of years that who they're referring to is John Connington. If one hand can die because John Connington, of course, dies, quote unquote, he drinks himself to death in the Essos as he as as he remembers back in The Lost Lord. And that was part of the plot that Varys had established for him that you will abandon the Golden Company and you, and you will go off and you will die and then we will resurrect you and you'll come back. And in order to save Aegon, that's a... a a, a friction point for Connington that he hates Vars as, as he hates Vars because he had to dishonor himself in terms of what everyone thought of him. You know, kind of strangely, at this junction running a Game of Thrones, John Connington hadn't been invented. You know, I was uh, reading some Reddit comments from Elio Garcia Jr., who co-wrote The World of Ice and Fire with George R. R. Martin, and he was reviewing some of George's notes for writing The World of Ice and Fire, and the Conningtons and House Connington himself didn't come up, come into existence until around 1999, when George was writing some notes about house sigils and house words and different things like that. So my other question beyond Westeros and Essos is, who are they talking about with this one hand can die? Why not a second? John Aaron? John Connington, some other character that was, you know, 
before John Kynes was invented, they had this other, George had this other hand of the king in mind that he eventually identified as John Connington. It, it's it's unclear at this point. Yeah, that line really confuses me. Uh, as you say, there's no clear candidate for who Illyrio is talking about. Part of me wonders if Varus lied to Illyrio about how John Aaron died, because thinking about this from Varus's perspective, the death of John Aaron is, is a real blow and a complication for his plan because it gets the Starks involved and it, it puts Ned on this detective hunt that could lead to the revelation of the twin cyst long before Varus is ready to take advantage of it. As he says, Ned right. has the bastard in the book and I can't delay him anymore. So John Aaron's death is a problem for Varus. So uh, maybe he's like trying to keep up his reputation with Illyrio and let Illyrio know he's in control of things and pretend that he killed John Aaron because of some reason. Maybe that's what's going <laughs> on. Um, maybe, as you say, John Connington would fit because there's the, the death cover-up that Varus is involved in. But if, if Martin doesn't have him in mind at that point that doesn't apply tywin's not dead uh carlton chelsted uh was burned by eris there's no indication varus had a part of that there's the merryweather one but that doesn't seem like it's really relevant either that is that is one of those cases where yeah maybe martin was it was had it like a to be decided later like you know slot <laughs> in his head for for what illyria was talking about here and he did he just liked the line but yeah, coming back to it after Dance with Dragons, that is a very confusing line. And it makes me think that, you know, just, just as Varus and Illyrio have changed their plans several times, Martin has maybe changed his plan a couple times too. And when he's, when he's referring, when Tristan Rivers is referring to how Illyrio's plan is changing all the time, maybe he's really talking about George R. R. Martin. Yeah, you know, you have that other line from A Feast for Crows with, if only I had five years, I could have worked my plots out sort of thing, which Littlefinger tells Sansa Stark in one of the Elaine chapters. And a lot of fans have rightly taken that to mean that George is talking about himself. It's like, ah, if only I had kept the five-year gap in order to work these plots out, I wouldn't be stuck in the the, the writing minds attempting to, to toil my way through A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. So yeah, I, I like the idea that it's another kind of George R. R. Martin winking at himself and the, the difficult long process it took to create A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. But, you know, it's... The, these types of things are difficult questions, and you, you do wonder whether you'll get some resolution for them in The Winds of Winter or A Dream of Spring. I think something that I'm very much looking forward to in The Winds of Winter is seeing Varys fully in action, no longer being the dude who is attempting to do whatever with Ned Stark, no longer being the guy who's only invested in Tyrion Lannister in order to prevent Stannis Baratheon from ending the war too soon, no longer being the guy, too, that's smuggling people about and skulking about the Red Keep with his little birds, but being the guy who's really, really working on behalf of Aegon and is doing the, the legwork and the groundwork in order to make Aegon's victory in Westeros, his initial victory, his temporary victory, I think, a, a reality before, of course, Daenerys Targaryen just spoils all that. But yeah, I think that's something that I'm especially looking forward to seeing with with Varys there and Illyria too, for that matter. Because the last time we saw him was in Tyrion's third chapter in A Dance with Dragons. You know, where he tells Tyrion that wow, I'll meet you up, I'll meet up with you in in Westeros uh, for the wedding or something like that. I think is is how it's 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 put in this in that chapter. Uh, I, I know that you have the belief that that Daenerys won't counter Illyrio back in Pentos at some point in the Winds of Winter. I don't know. I I I've kind of, I also feel like Illyrio might see him in Westeros potentially at the uh, at Aegon's wedding to Arianne and in the Red Keep potentially. I don't know. We'll see. I couldn't agree more about uh, looking forward to Varys's uh, kind of coming out of the closet, so to speak, 
and exposing <laughs> all his plans in Illyrio too, and whether it's with in Pentos or King's Landing, I do think Martin has the potential to have them kind of spill the beans in a lot of ways. And if he yeah. want if he wants to streamline this and make it very clear what happened when he can, but of course if he decides if he doesn't if he doesn't really have a coherent A to B <laughs> to C kind of plot in his head, he can also just move past it and brush aside it if he want and then focus purely on the character dynamics. So yeah, I mean I, I'm looking forward to. Varus and the Winds of Winter in a lot of ways because it's been so much build up to him, as you say, no longer skulking around but putting it, uh, really putting the pedal to the metal. And this is one of the reasons I'm looking forward to it is that we will, we will finally get, you know, him, him a la Charlie and It's Always Sunny with the corkboard and his plan all laid out. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll finally get that with Varus. So I look forward to it. Well, you know, when Littlefinger has that whole speech about the the Vale inheritance plan with Harry the Air, we, we we need a moment like that with Varus, and I hope we do yes. get it. I hope we get it in the Winds of Winter. I absolutely hope so too, man. So. I think that about wraps us up for Game of Thrones Aria 3. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, and all the great places that you find your podcast. Yes, indeed. If you haven't checked out our Patreon, please go ahead and check it out at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-I-F. In terms of social media, you can find us at notacast, A-S-O-I-I-F, and our email at uh, notacast, A-S-O-I-F, at gmail.com. Uh, personally, I'm at Poor Quentin on Twitter, or at uh, you can find me at poorquentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brennan Beefish on Twitter, Brennan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire.wordpress.com. So join us next week as the Hand of the King quits his job in protest. He's done with this shit in King's Landing, man. That's another great chapter where we're going to be analyzing a Game of Thrones editor 8. So look forward to talking with you about that, sir. And of course, again, thanks everyone for listening and we will see you guys next week. Take care, everybody.